Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. I have a very special guest with me today. It is Brad Palumbo, and he has been uh, in in my circles for a minute, and uh, I've been reading some of your articles lately. I, I'd like to get just a, a quick background for you so that people know who you are, what you're about. I'm sure more people know you than me, but still, it'd be good for those that don't. Sure. So I am a journalist and editor at the Foundation for Economic Education. I used to work at the Washington Examiner the DC-based magazine and conservative website. Uh, and I generally write about economics and policy from, you know, the free market, small government, um, small L libertarian perspective. So people know me from that. Uh, and then I also host a podcast, Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo uh, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, where some people might've listened to me uh, as well. So so I guess that that's a nutshell. Great. Uh, yeah. And sorry, I forgot to mention the uh, Breaking Boundaries is actually how I found you originally. So uh, I'm glad to to get any plug for that in that we can. Um, I guess, uh, first off, I'd like to know, uh, well, what what section of the LP umbrella do you think that you, you fall into if you were to label yourself? So this is an interesting question because, because I work in journalism, I do opinion and commentary and policy analysis. So I'm not an objective news reporter. I, I never claim to be. Um, but I don't generally do like the partisan side of things. So mm-hmm. I actually am a registered Libertarian Party member. Well, voter. I'm not a dues paying member sure. um, because I voted for Gary Johnson in 2016 and I registered. So I am technically a LP member, but I I kind of also identify with some in the libertarian Republican camp, you know, sure. your Rand Paul types. Um, but I, I, I tend to not really pl- plug in a ton to the partisanship. So I also really like Tulsi Gabbard. She'll be a guest on my podcast uh, sometime in the next two months. We're working out details. Wow. But I, obviously she's a progressive. She's a, a Democrat. She wants Medicare for all. But I like her a lot because she speaks about ending the wars and ending the drug war. And there's a lot of common ground. So I tend to not worry too much about the label next to their name. I liked Justin Amash when he was a Republican. And I like him now that he's an LP uh, member. So yeah. I, I write a lot about politicians and policy and bills and their stances they take but like even trump i'll say when he does something that i think is right or agree with and i'll say when he does something i think is dumb like tariffs or uh like some of his immigration restrictions so it to me the the partisan affiliation or what camp it's almost beside the point for me i don't spend a lot of time thinking about it no that's totally fair and uh i think i was just asking because there's oftentimes discord between the different sects of the Libertarian Party. So I was just curious if you if you had a camp. Um, but I, I appreciate so I, the I appreciate the honesty. I mean, it, yeah, uh, with the with the LP camps, I don't think I have a camp because I guess maybe I don't know enough about that. I know there's like this intra war. I have some <laughs> friends who are in in the Mises crowd. Uh, I have some friends who are not. I have some friends that worked on the Jorgensen campaign. Uh, I would have I wanted Justin Amash to get the nomination personally. Um, but yeah, I guess, so I don't have a faction, but I, I do kind of have tentacles and connections to 
a bunch of people in the different factions. And it's an interesting intro intro debate. I, I'm hoping to learn more about it, but uh, it's definitely an interesting one. Yeah, no, it is. And it's, uh, I think it's a necessary one, unfortunately. I, I will come out of the closet in my partisan nature. I, I am definitely more of the Mises Caucus crowd. And I, I think that that they give us the bo- the best hope for success long term, but I won't drag you into that civil war. Um, you can stand above it. That's that's more than fair. I uh, <laughs> uh, did did Jacob Hornberger um, work for FEE or am I mistaken? Uh, he he may have before I did. He doesn't. I so we we haven't overlapped. I I don't know if he did or not. He I mean, he may very well have. Okay. Um, seems like a a great guy. I didn't pay too much attention to the the primary process for the LP. I kind of just started tuning in to it more. So once they, once they had a nominee uh, and I was not a fan of Joe Jorgensen, I interviewed her so, uh, several times. I, I think she's a nice, nice person. I think she's an intelligent woman, but I think she had, she didn't really have what it takes to be a serious contender. Mm-hmm. And I think she, she didn't really have a compelling message or vision uh, and, and, and so her candidacy to me was a big flop. And that was a disappointment because I think with the right candidate, they could have made a splash this year when you have two less than perfect candidates uh, on the mainstream <laughs> tickets, shall we say. <laughs> to, to put it mildly, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was my frustration with the Jorgensen campaign. I actually like most of her policy proposals, but when it came to whoever was running her campaign, I think she was actually a much better candidate than, than her campaign presented her to be. Um, but ultimately, it, it was a massively blown opportunity. I mean, it, in, in my lifetime, I've been a libertarian since the 90s, so I'm, I'm deep in this. And I, I can't remember a time that I was more disappointed with the messaging that came out from the LP. It, ultimately, if you have a, a lockdown where everyone is, you know, all, all the small businesses are closed, you're forced to wear masks, all these, all these you know, basically in my view, clear un- unconstitutional policies are, are laid out and, and pushed, you know, in a dictatorial fashion from state governors. I can't believe that the LP wouldn't have come out strongly opposed to that. And I think that because the Democrat Party and the Republicans, you know, Trump and Biden, uh, were not messaging in any, you know, semblance of the de- defense of personal freedom, it presented an opportunity to stand out um, but also not abandon your principles. You know, they, they could have gotten publicity. They could have spoken, you know, the, the freedom and the liberty minded message and and gained some actual traction. But instead of that, they they chose to retreat and kind of, you know, back the Black Lives Matter movement as opposed to blacking or, or uh, backing liberty for for all, which I think is is more the libertarian message. Did you did you have similar frustrations, or where were you on on that? Yeah, I I did find it bizarre. I mean, we at Fee were one of the f- first people kind of beating the alarm about these lockdowns and all the second order consequences, the domestic violence hotline spiking, the suicides, right. the drug overdoses, and also the the fact that these lockdowns they it really there's very weak evidence suggesting that they even work at containing. So they clearly have these huge costs. And uh, so, so honestly, I think we've been vindicated. If you go back and look at what we were saying in March, May, and, and a lot of other people are late to the party. So it would have been good to have a very outspoken LP uh, message at that time to contrast with, I think Republicans have come around to this position, but they sure embraced it at first. And that, that would have been a good option. But I think the latter subject that you bring up is actually the one that frustrated me more because this was the 
perfect moment for libertarians because on one hand you had woke progressives who are talking about police brutality and shootings and real problems but isolating most of america with their toxic woke rhetoric about this kind of super alarmist um you know the narrative uh, of black lives matter that america is evil and systemically racist and yep. the real date is 1776 uh <laughs> you know, the, the Hannah Nicole Jones notion that America is really defined by slavery and that's it yeah. rather where, as I view it as well, America slavery was an enormous deviation from the things that make America great. Yes, um, exactly. But at the same time, on the other side, on the Republicans, you had people who were just burying their head in the sand and saying, this is fine. Nothing yeah. to see here. Yeah, so co cops this, don't ever kill un unarmed people. It never happens. Right. So there was this perfect opportunity and also we have to talk about the riots. So the other problem is that the woke left was defending or just saying nothing about the riots and the looting and the violence. And dozens of people were killed in those riots. More people were killed. And this is not to minimize police shootings, but it's just to put this in context. More people were killed in the George Floyd riots uh, than actually unarmed black men are shot in a year by police in the United States. Wow, that's so, an astonishing stat. I didn't know that. It is. It, you can look it up. It, it's over two dozen were killed and you have about 11 uh, unarmed black men shot by police. And, and many of those, don't get me wrong, are tragedies and uncalled for. But just to put that in context. Right. So here's the problem. You had Republicans saying how bad the rioting and looting was. You had liberals saying police shootings are bad and we need criminal justice reform. And both sides are half right and half super wrong. Exactly. And there was this clear lane for a libertarian message to say, and actually I think if you go look at Rand Paul and Justin Amash, they did this. They yes. introduced police reform legislation while at the same time saying, well, we're not Marxist and we don't think America is evil and racist. Whereas the LP and Joe Jorgensen, they started sounding like, like woke lefties on this stuff. And right. they were kind of mum. There were some libertarians and organizations and circles that were kind of shrugging at the rioting and looting. And to me, that's insane because that's the core of what it means to be a libertarian to me. Yeah, to property rights. Private property. Right. Uh, and property rights are human rights. Violating property rights is a form of violence. So to me, I mean, the, the, the whole point of having a government is to protect people from that, to in, ensure their property rights. So the fact that in cities across America that didn't happen to me was a disgrace. And there was this huge opening and I did it right to my small extent as a writer and commentator, but there's this huge opening on the national stage for a third way that got both issues right. And the LP largely and Joe Jorgensen largely blew it. Yep. And I think that the, the best selling point that libertarians have is that we're not Sally come lately. You know, we, we have had the answers to these issues for decades and you have Biden who wrote the crime bill. You have Kamala who enforced the crime bill. And then you have the LP who has been, you know, for uh, criminal justice reform and ending the war on drugs and all these other things that that should have appealed to Black Lives Matter without signaling to them in their their own, you know, kind of divisive messaging system. And they chose not to utilize our track record, which I think is just a catastrophic mistake. You have such so many dissenting viewpoints amongst the the woke left when it comes to Biden and, and Harris, and and they didn't trust those people, and we could have come out as as definitive allies that aren't, you know, pandering. And I, I just think it was such a catastrophic mistake. And I, I don't know how it, how it transpired. It, it almost feels as if they, they didn't identify the opportunity or they just, 
I don't know. It's just it's just so frustrating. As someone who's been doing this for so long, I think that what what makes libertarianism compelling for a normie, so to speak, is that people like like Ron Paul, uh, you know, identified the economic collapse before it happened. We identified the the pitfalls of the war on drugs before it really, you know, became such a catastrophe. And and these are these are, you know, real hard evidence of our correctness, you know, like, why would you not run on that? It's, it's weird. <laughs> no, I completely agree. Uh, and, and I, the one thing I always wonder about libertarian campaigns is, I mean, Gary Johnson in 2016, whatever you think of him as a candidate, right? He did well relative to the LP. He got, a, he got what, three and a half percent of the vote. Yep. Uh, he's, he blew away the, the record. And now with George Jorgensen, you have a huge regression back to 1% or something. Uh, the people who ran our campaign shouldn't, shouldn't be hired and put in charge of the next one, but but they will be. That's the thing. Oh, uh, and maybe that's just because there's not a huge pool of talent. But to me, I mean, it seems like an LP on the political side, you can just fail upwards constantly. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's a not a huge problem. That's not how if you're not improving. I mean, I get that like 2016 to 2020, the expectation shouldn't be, well, if you don't win, you're now banned for life. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But if if you're not making any progress and you just keep failing and then getting going with the same people and the same limited group. I mean, it's nuts to me that Sarwark was in charge for as long as he was. Yes. I mean, he and I are, are mortal enemies at this point. Um. <laughs> well, I got, I don't really know that much about him. All I know is that some, I've seen some dumb shit that he said and done, but more importantly, he was in charge of the LP for such a long time. And it's like, okay, after a year or two, look at the results. And if that person's not giving you results, they got to go. Yes. Well, that, this I is think, what we understand about what makes private businesses great, right? Yeah. But we don't apply it to the party. I was just going to say, if if you're the party of capitalism, you have to be able to identify, you know, a successful business model, and the LP is not one. So, how are you going to be the party of of you know capitalism and and not be able to identify that? It's it's puzzling. Uh, yeah, Sarwak, I I think that that the the biggest downfall of the uh, the Gary Johnson campaign is that because. I mean, he got on Rogan. That, let's be honest. That's that's largely the reason, in my view, that he did so well. And and Sarwak used that as vindication for his his path. Um, and and you know, I, I forget what's what's the name of his. Uh, was it Weld? Was his VP candidate? Oh, Weld. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that you know he he went on Dave Smith. He talked about how you know if you <laughs> he'd vote for Dick Cheney if he was the LP candidate. Uh, it's just it's just a sickness like they they are they genuinely they're principleless uh, sarwak in particular is just principleless and and i when you when it comes down to regular partisan politics that may fly you know you can have a republican who's not a conservative you can have a democrat who's not a liberal but when you when it's a libertarian candidate they better be libertarian and and weld was not and i, I mean he he came right, out he wasn't yeah they and, should at least be they should at least be libertarian on the core issues yes exactly i mean i i am very actually simple and maybe i i don't know maybe you come differently at this i'm very sympathetic to the idea of not running purists right yeah and no that's fine meeting too the, meeting the electorate where it's at but like the core things that differentiate a libertarian from like a a big government republican which is what bill bill weld is um those are like like ending ending wars and opposing the Federal Reserve's insanity and yep. these sorts of things. Those have to be red lines. Yeah. Uh, it's a basic litmus test. It's not it's not a purity test. It's just like, 
are you at least a libertarian? Like he's just so clearly wasn't. It was so right. frustrating. Um, well, I wanted to ask you, uh, there's been a lot of rumors about Dave Smith uh, potentially running. First, have you heard anything about that? Second, are you a fan? Uh, would would that be something that's interesting to you or, or are you not familiar? Uh, you know, I honestly don't have a big take on that. I only know a little bit about Dave Smith. Um, so I don't have a huge take. I certainly haven't heard any rumors, but I, I'm not, I'm, I'm really kind of in the policy in the day to day. Sure. I, what, what I'll say is this, you know, he at least has demonstrated a grassroots, um, and, an energy and a constituency yep. to a small extent. I actually, and this is my hot take. I really think the LP needs a celebrity. Yes. It needs, it needs a libertarian Donald Trump, like Kanye a Vince 2024. Vaughn, Dwan, uh, well, Kanye, there's some problems there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I, but I, you know, and also the the ups, it needs two things. From the the reason a celebrity candidate would be great is one, they come with their, a, a crap ton of their own money, right? I mean, if you could just start with ten million dollars self funded, or even a million dollars self funded, it would just make your campaign a different story from day one. And two, they would just instantly command much more media attention. Part of the problem is like. What was I, I would actually be curious to see a survey. What percentage of people even recognize Joe Jorgensen's name as of November fourth? Uh, oh, right, it's, like it's so because, small, man. And that's not. I mean, it's partially her fault, but also that's why she was doomed to fail as a candidate. They took a nobody, and then ran them on a national ticket. Like that—that's kind of nuts. Yeah. Um, I think the only way you're really going to succeed is. I mean, if you had Vince Vaughn or somebody, maybe you can't get him, but there's got to be a celebrity out there who is a libertarian and would do this, right? Somebody who everyone knows the name, who would get invited on on Rogan day one, who would be invited on uh, cable news, right? There'd be buzz about them. That to me is the most interesting idea for actually making it work. And otherwise, I think you need somebody uh, with charisma and a message who can inspire people. And yep. that was never Joe Jorgensen. Yeah. Well, I think you nailed it. I mean, Vince Vaughn would be tremendous, but as far as the other criteria you laid out, Dave Smith checks those boxes. I mean, he, he is a fiery orator that will, will grab attention. He has, he's friends. He's been on Rogan, you know, three or four or five times already. Um, he's obviously been on Fox news and a whole bunch of other, uh, he's been on SE cup. So like he has the avenues to get our messaging out there. Um, this is actually something I've been going back and forth with uh, amongst my, you know, Mises crowd. And, and we genuinely believe that ultimately the, the LP given the, the odds of actual, you know, federal election success is, is better served as essentially a, a proper, uh, a propaganda arm of the Liberty movement. Uh, what's your feeling on that? Do you, do you, are you still deluded enough to believe we can win the presidency? <laughs> um, not really, but I would never say never after the last five years. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm not saying never. I'm just saying in, in the very in the short, short term. Run. I don't, yeah. No, but honestly, like if you had, it is not, I would not rule out the fact that a, 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 a really unique libertarian candidate could shock everyone. But you're absolutely right. 97% chance not happening. Right. I'll just say we would have said the same, the same thing about Donald freaking Trump getting elected president. So that's true. We, we would have said the same thing about a, a global pandemic, right? Like, or at least some people would have. So uh, yeah, I, but, but I agree with you in the sense that um, the biggest thing I think the presidential candidate can be is a microphone. 
Uh, and so to me, the number one criteria, and like I said, I don't know much about Dave Smith, but it sounds like you have, you think he'd be able to do this pretty well, but it, it's just, can this person get noticed? Can they get media attention? Can they get the message out there? And that also is like going to correspond to more votes. It's like, just as you increase name recognition alone, you get more votes. But the most important thing to me is that someone who can, uh, be heard, not just say the things, but actually get them picked up by the media, get attention from them, get them picked up by star YouTubers, right? This kind of thing. That's And so if that's what you mean by like messaging and, pro, and propaganda, I mean, I agree. I think that's, that's the only way forward because you can't have any chance of success when nobody knows who you are and nobody knows what you believe. Yep. And also we need to convert people. I mean, what's how are you going to convert people if they don't hear you? You know, it's a, it's a pretty, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. You got to, you got to get in their ears so that they can actually hear your ideas and then have a chance at actually believing in what you believe in. And, and I think that we are definitely, in my opinion, definitely in the, the best opportunity for a, a true freedom like revolution in this country, given that we've been locked in our fucking houses for 10 months. Like people are upset and, and rightfully so. And I, I just, it kills me that, that we blew this opportunity. I think it was so ripe um, to, you know, grow the movement and and potentially, you know, have a really significant countervailing force against what I view as tyranny. Uh, I guess I should ask you. I'm sure I'm, I, I haven't read an article that you've written on it, but I know that you were against the lockdowns early on. What what was your feeling uh, over the past ten months? Are you as as disturbed and distressed by it as I am, or do you think that that we get our freedoms back with the vaccine rollout? Oh, geez. Um, I, I can't say I'm super optimistic, but I'm also not, I think I, so, so there's, um, economist Robert Higgs identified something called the ratchet effect, uh, for your listeners, where it's essentially every time there's an emergency and you can put a little, sometimes it's an emergency. Sometimes it's something they call an emergency. Government officials claim more power for themselves. Uh, and then that power recedes when the crisis is passed, but it never recedes fully. So I was, I can state definitively that the government has expanded power over us and set precedences or precedents that will stay with us and they won't concede. But I do think a good chunk of it will go back to normal, but this is the danger over time. Right. Uh, and the other thing is like the truly unprecedented. So so I have not been as huge on covering the, the lockdowns themselves. I've done a little bit about it, but I've also been really focused on the stimulus response. The, I, I don't even like that word because it's kind of BS. But, <laughs> yeah. I read your um, article about it. It was great. Right. So I, so the CARES Act in March, the this giant bloated bill that Trump rightly called the disgrace, uh, these, these things would have been insane impossible unthinkable yeah that the federal government would run a 3.1 trillion dollar deficit in a single year would have been unthinkable to us five years ago but when there was that... a tea party started over a, a third of that right so <laughs> right. so the the scope of a here's the thing that nobody really talks about the cdc get put in place via fiat a quote-unquote eviction moratorium that essentially commandeers the property of renters throughout the entire country. And it's been in place for like eight months. Yep. I, That's I'm a, nuts. I'm a mortgage broker and, and they've put 
a moratorium on foreclosures and evictions. And it's like, people don't understand what kind of a precedent that sets. I mean, it, it, your so, house is not your house. Yeah. Well that, and it also clearly undermines contract law, um, property rights, like major, you know, uh, like fundamental underpinnings of how our system functions. So I guess what I would say, the thing I'm most concerned about is after the way the government inter interjected itself into the economy, all of a sudden to many people, a green new deal does not sound so radical. Yes, exactly. And and if you can't extrapolate it out, like you don't have to be Alex Jones to identify the fact that this is almost certainly going to be utilized for, you know, global warming. Like they they are already Oh yeah. It's there's already murmurs, there's already whispers and it's going to I mean Joe Biden wanted louder. a $15 federal minimum wage as part of his COVID relief. <laughs> right. That's on his campaign website, right? Yep. Like they, they they don't they're not shy about conflating their entire agenda with crisis response, like, the, and that's what they'll do. And so my biggest concern is just that this puts us on the path towards economic statism uh, yeah. much more rapidly because people have acquiesced to things that they never would have, would have acquiesced to if they weren't so scared and there wasn't such an unprecedented crisis that they were perceiving all around them. Exactly. So, I, I don't know. So that's don't, my concern. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how old you are, but I'm sure you were alive for it. Uh, it it's I'm I'm 38, so it, it just absolutely screams in my ears, uh, reminiscing to 01 and and the Patriot Act and all these other laws that got passed, the NSA, TSA, things that that the American public would have never accepted if it weren't for 9/11. And and this is, um, in my view, an even more catastrophic loss of well, our. Well, and think our about it like this: 20 years out, most of the Patriot Act is still on the books. And they're still using all those powers yep. that people only acquiesce to because they were terrified after 9-11. Yeah, exactly. And people right. forget and about it, but the government keeps all the power and they don't forget about it. So that, so I agree with you completely. It's going to be that times five or times 10. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's the, the ratchet things. effect you were describing. Yes. That is the, the perfect example of the ratchet effect. So that, uh, that you're going to see the same thing with, with coronavirus, honestly. I mean, if, if the government has the authority to, lock people in their homes and it has the authority to ban church gatherings first amendment be damned mm -hmm. um what what can it do next i mean that's what i'm concerned about but i will say i maybe this is the optimist in me i hope that there's a push among the people and among republicans conservatives libertarians everyone in between for some sort of tea party 2.0 like you got to there's, there's got to be a countervailing backlash yep. to to this uh at least that's what i hope and and what i would like to see is a non a nonpartisan one one that doesn't have some deity like trump or or you know some counter deity like biden one that's actually about defending our rights like i i think that the biggest problem that i have with the protests over the past you know 6 months has been that it's so partisan in nature, you know, like I, mm -hmm. if the, the anti-lockdown, like I went to some anti-lockdown protests and, and it was, you know, basically a MAGA rally, you know, it's like, and, and that scares off any Biden supporter. Right. Or, that's or, bad tactics. Yeah. Any, any lefty that's also against the lockdowns is, is horrified to go stand next to these people because they've been propagandized that they're evil racists. And obviously I don't think that they are. I'm just saying, uh, I would like to see a more broad coalition of people that are truly standing up for their freedoms because that shouldn't be a partisan issue. Like it used to be when I was growing up that uh, regardless of our, our differences of opinion 
on policy and whatever, we still were able to, you know, coalesce around the fact that we were a free people and we meant it. And it just seems as if we've lost that message. What's your vibe on that? No, I, I agree with that. I don't have a ton to add, but I, I think it's right. I, I And it's interesting because in the grassroots and in the polling, you, you really do see um, people rebuking this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like restaurant owners in New York City defying it or just bashing Cuomo, banning him. I mean, it's New York City. Those people aren't Republicans, most of them. Sure. They're not conservatives, right? But they've well, seen it They might game. be now. <laughs> well, they might be. They might have just taken the red pill or the yellow pill or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But I, the point it, more simply is that there's a lot of sentiment there that is not just Republicans. So making it a partisan thing is extremely self-defeating. I agree. Yeah. And that, that's that been the disappointing uh, part of the pushback is that it just hasn't been there's just been so little unity. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, the partisan nature of this country has has never been more stark. And I don't know how you get around that. But um, let, let me pivot to a different question or a different topic. Given that the Libertarian Party is not welcome within the the inner sanctum of the political elite at this point, and, and they utilize, you know, whatever dirty tactics they can to kind of suppress our voice or, or uh, keep us off the debate stage. Do you think that having the Libertarian Party organizations um, or or think tanks in Washington Washington D.C. is counterproductive to our overall efforts. So, do you mean Libertarian Party or Libertarian Small L think tanks? Well, I'm not so sure that they're small L, but yes, the the think tanks in D.C. are the ones that concern me most. It, it seems as if they've been they've been more prone to the 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 woke overtake of Libertarian Party as a whole. So. That's interesting. Um, I tend to think that that some of them do a lot of good work still in the weeds on policy and have some influence. Uh, but there is really, I mean, this kind of beltway libertarian bloke. There's a whole lot of people who are on not some nonprofit payroll and don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are the there are a fair number of people who basically just want to be accepted in the crowd at the DC cocktail parties. Uh, and so they're not out there taking, you know, the radical pro Liberty stances, but uh, yeah, having worked in those circles and been in those spaces is I can say they're still uh, fairly influential in some policy scenes to, behind the scenes, some policy debates. So I would say there's value there. Um, but the value is undermined by Uh, For example, uh, the Cato Institute, there's people I like there, there's people that do good work there, but they should have been trying to work with the Trump administration on foreign policy because he was saying all the right things and just not really doing them or following through. Exactly. He was saying, bring the troops home. He was saying, don't fight endless wars. He was saying uh, all the libertarian things on the foreign policy. He didn't really follow through on like 90% of it, but instead... I mean, the foreign policy guy at Cato, one of the big ones, wrote a whole book about how Trump is the worst foreign policy president ever. Right. Uh, it's, it's like insane. It's just nuts. So so to me, they've burned bridges by um, they really should be, I think, trying to make broader coalitions on issue specific areas. And there's some like there's some places where they have done that. Uh, I'm thinking of criminal justice reform and right. such. But it seems like there's too much concern on trying to be trying to be earn the respect of the Brookings institution. Exactly. Uh, and there's not enough uh, concern with actually 
looking for common ground and then viciously fighting for progress on that individual policy front. And that's what I think, that's where I think there is value of the DC organizations, yeah. but that's something they've been increasingly uh, sliding away from, unfortunately. Yeah, my, my buddy Kurt, the libertarian, uh, thinks that the, the LP's ultimate mechanism for success in this environment, given the unlikelihood that will actually win federal elections is to serve as a spoiler and to force uh, one of the duopoly candidates to uh, essentially acquiesce to our demands and and if they are willing to do so and promise you know xyz and policy change uh based off of our platform or our demands that we will then concede the presidency and throw our endorsement behind them do you have any opinion as to the I mean, I, I think it has a real chance for, you know, getting more libertarian policy passed. Ultimately, once you throw your endorsement, you could have a guy like Trump who gives lip service and then does nothing for us for the most part. Um, but I think it's a it's an interesting idea. Have you ever considered anything like that? It is an interesting idea. Um, and this reminds me of one thing. I know some like nationalist right winger types who always talk about how irrelevant libertarians are. They only exist in D.C., yet they were also blaming libertarian voters like the two percent that went for jorgensen in the swing states exactly for we, trump losing we, we literally like, we literally get nothing that we want but we're responsible for everything <laughs> right it's hilarious we're simultaneously irrelevant people who are totally not representative of the population and we also control everything uh and are to blame for the electoral outcomes so it is funny to me no, I would say like the problem with the scenario that you just laid out though is exactly that there's no follow through enforcement, right? Like we could say, all right, we will support Trump if he does X, Y, and Z, right? As a block. Mm -hmm. But then once he's elected, what's to make, ensure that he actually does those things? Nothing, right? Yeah. Well, so well, his, his, uh, his mechanism for enforcement was essentially that um, if you, if you don't accomplish what we've demanded and that you've promised, essentially we will, we will go for your opponent and we will try and you know primary you everything else. Um, I, I think that it has merit, but it's it's not without its own natural pitfalls, which you just described. I, I don't know that it would be effective. Um, ultimately, I do think that there's a chance that it would increase some libertarian policy making, but uh, in the long I, term, I just also I don't know that we that the LP has enough of a base for that. Right. I think if the LP had five percent, there'd be a stronger argument they could they could push around their heft like yeah. that. But yeah. when you like how much of the of the LPs one percent would really swing with them upon requests like that? Like, I think it's a cool idea, but I just I'm not sure it's practical. Yeah. Well, it, his belief was that if we throw, I can't believe I'm arguing all of Kurt's points here, but uh, I'm sure he'll appreciate it. Uh, his belief was that if we throw all of our resources into swing states, like that, that's been the one thing that the Libertarian Party has not done. They've always been like, okay, we're just going to get a broad, you know, broad umbrella effect and if we get five percent then we get funding and blah 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 his his point was that um instead of going after you know any libertarian in california where you stand no chance you go after ohio you go after florida and you try and you try and be the difference maker and then you try to advertise exactly that so so anyways. here's a, a different thought though what if they just focused on like three states like new hampshire is probably the most libertarian state in the country right right in terms of the voters if they just poured all their resources and just tried to win new hampshire's electoral votes that alone if they could win one state that would make them 
uh, that would instantly give the LP much more national attention and clout. Yeah. And it makes you a power broker to some extent. That's, that is an interesting idea. Um, you said that New Hampshire was the most libertarian state. Do you, do you have any idea um, how well we did in the presidential campaign for Kentucky? Because I mean, we have Rand Paul and Thomas Massey there. Those, those are like the best guys as far as I'm concerned. How did that happen? Do you have any idea? I don't know how, how George Organson did there. Um, it, and it's interesting because it's like you can get in the state of Kentucky, they elect both Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell. Right. <laughs> so like, I think they've just, they're just all over the place. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's something promising, I guess. You're right. That's a pattern. Um, so maybe they would be the other, maybe you pick three states. Maybe it's Kentucky, New Hampshire, and one other. Uh, and you just try to steal them. <laughs> yeah. Then you would be, if you were actually had electoral votes, even if you didn't put any resources into any of the other states, right? Then you're a power broker. Mm -hmm. uh, when you just have 1% spread across 50 states, you don't have much clout to be negotiating with. Sure. Yeah. And that's, that's been the issue is that we, we don't have much clout. Um, I, I read, I think it was your article that was about the, the poverty excuses for, for crime in, in Seattle and San Francisco. Was that you or was that another? Yeah, article? that was me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so go ahead and like lay out, lay out the case there for those that don't know about it. So Seattle, the, the city council is considering a proposal that would excuse, excuse all sorts of misdemeanors and property crimes and theft uh, if the person said that they were poor and homeless and they were stealing to survive. Uh, and this is the interesting part. It's not even like the example they use is um, a person stealing bread who's starving, but actually it does. It would cover you if you steal anything, even if you stole a Lamborghini, just right. if you said, I'm going to use the proceeds of this because I'm poor. <laughs> so it's a crazy crackpot idea. Uh, obviously, I think the economic consequences of that are, are manifest. You would encourage crime. You would undermine the economy's most basic principle of property rights. But it's important to keep an eye on things like this because it's just Seattle uh, and San Francisco, like you said. But those five years ago, 10 years ago, a lot of the ideas that dominate the current Democratic Party were just things in random liberal cities, yep. right? They were just on wokeness and identity politics were just college campuses. They'd say, why do you right wingers spend so much time freaking out about college campuses? They're just colleges. And it's like, well, no, because now that's going to spread. And now it's that it controls corporations and media. Uh, and all sorts of other uh, big entities and institutions. So th that's why I think those kinds of proposals are so alarming uh, because the, the cities and states are, and in many ways this is a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing when the ideas are bad, but they're like breeding grounds for ideas and exactly. democracy and different policies. Uh, and so we got to pay attention to those things that are happening at the local level that are nuts and fight against them because if not, they, they will end up spreading to the national body politic. And and that's clearly evidenced by California policies. I mean, California has I'm I'm born and raised here in San Diego and you know any anything that gets tried here um you know wait a decade and it's pretty much everywhere. And and I think that that the the scary thing about that is that you know certainly some good ideas gay marriage and things like that have come from California and and I don't have any issue with that, but um when you have experiments like dismissing property rights over pro you know poverty issues um it doesn't seem to matter anymore how negative the repercussions are i mean los angeles is basically a dystopian hellscape san francisco is 
you know, covered with fecal matter and needles everywhere. My brother's a paramedic there. He, he deals with the homeless epidemic constantly. It's horrifying. And like these, these policies have real world ramifications. They're not just like Ivy league thought experiments. This stuff is actually happening. And it doesn't seem that, um, that the, you know, the actual outcome of these experiments is being viewed as seriously as it ought to. And I think that your article did a good job of, of showing how insane these ideas are and how, how negative the ramifications are. And I just don't know how we stop it. I guess that, that brings me to my next question. It seems to me that, that culture is really the, the issue. And I know there's always a debate culture downstream, downstream from politics or vice versa. I think it obviously goes both ways to some extent. Um, but how, how would you go again, go about, um, trying to assist the culture in this country without, you know, blowing up academia? Well, I, I, I think that people need to be free to vote with their feet. And I, I honestly think one of the only ways that you get through the next 50 years without a national divorce uh, is, or a, let alone a civil war, right, is federalism. And uh, basically California needs to be able to do its crazy policies and people need to be able to leave uh, and they need to be able to go to Texas. And they currently are somewhat, but the federalization of our politics prohibits that. Like a $15 yes. minimum wage would ruin what we have now, which is a com competition, right? New Hampshire has no minimum wage and it has before COVID the lowest poverty rate and lowest unemployment rates, uh, some of the lowest in the entire of all 50 states. So wow, that's incredible. Uh, Whereas in California, right, they've got, if you adjust for the cost of living, it's the poverty capital of America, <laughs> even though they have all these government programs and everything. So, and you've seen this, people fleeing New York and California and COVID is only accelerating that because people want to get out of these lockdown hell holes where they, they actually have even more deaths like in New York City um, because they put COVID patients in nursing homes. So <laughs> I think that, that the only way you solve these things is by letting people vote with their feet and then they they need to not take the bad policies and politicians with them yes exactly um, that's the so concern. i think <laughs> I, I yeah and that's that's the big concern because people don't understand um many people don't understand basic economics many people don't understand the difference between intentions and results they don't understand the difference between politicians rhetoric and their actions so I, I, that is my, I think that's the solution, but what we just identified um, is also the downfall because Texas might end up just going blue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you flee for freedom, but you bring your shit ideas with you. Um, hey bud, it's going to happen again. You know, <laughs> like I, I don't know how people can, uh, can vote for these policies that destroy where they live and then go elsewhere and do the same thing. It's, it's mind blowing. But um, my, my personal viewpoint is that if, if we don't, kind of undermine the this public school system and and increase people's drive towards uh, private schools or or charters or whatever um, we we stand no chance I mean the 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 trajectory of the you know economic ignorance uh, amongst the the youth in this country in my opinion has never been more grave you know it's like we we desperately need to have some and like re-enlightenment amongst the the youth in this country and and given that they get all their information from you know pop culture and media and it's all it's all directed by people who are extreme extremely woke and extremely ignorant when it comes to economics I, I just don't see how we have any hope long term and if we don't change the culture around so i don't know yeah i mean you have to try and you have to have people who can message <clears throat> and who can 
we need more libertarian YouTubers. We need more libertarian yes. social media influencers. Uh, we need more libertarian TV commentators, more libertarian radio hosts, more libertarian writers. We need more libertarian TikTokers. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and I'm a little. No, you're right. You're right. But um, it, I agree with you. We have to meet people where they are. So uh, that that's the thing. There's a lot of libertarians who want to sit around with books and talk to their friends about how great Mises is. And it's like, sure, but, or, or they want to write on Facebook diatribes about like Hayek, Hayek and, and ideas and Marx. And it's like, sure, but why don't, why is it that no young people understand that the reason college is so expensive is because big government fucked it up in the first place right? with federal student loans. Like no one has even been exposed to that idea. So they're just naturally all defaulting to yeah, we want AOC to cancel our loans and nationalize higher education. So that's the problem. I mean, we can't win a fight we're not even engaging in. Yeah, and, and and these people are you know buried in student loan debt, and they're they're feeling hopeless and and perhaps of no fault of their own. I think it is still their fault. They have personal responsibility, but they have been indoctrinated that you have to go to college, and if you have to take out two hundred grand in debt, that that's what you do. I mean, it's it's absolutely stupid, but. Um, it's, you have to still maintain some level of sympathy for these people. It's like, it is, it is tragic in its own right. The, the fact that, um, you know, student loan debt is not bankruptable is, is a travesty. Like the, it, it really is, uh, deeply immoral. It's, it's essentially debt slavery. I'm not, I'm not at all for, um, you know, just having the taxpayer foot the bill for it. But at the same time, I would like to see, you know, government guarantees on those loans, uh, obviously gotten rid of, um, or at least diminished so we can head in that direction. But it just, it just seems as if, <clears throat> if we head down this path, um, it gets very dark very quickly. Do you, what, what keeps you hopeful? I mean, what, what, uh, where, where's the white pill for you? Oh, um, that's a good question. What keeps me hopeful? I think the fact that despite everything our system is holding and our institutions are holding um, to some extent. And so I think we have the framework, right? The First Amendment is a bulwark against, as long as we have judges that are willing to enforce it, and right now we do, uh, it's a bulwark against tyranny. It's a bulwark against illiberalism, be it left-wing or right-wing. Uh, and so as long as those institutional rail guards are in place, things can't get they can't really cross the red line of no return. Uh, it's And so it's the push over the long run to undermine those institutions, abolish the Senate, abolish the Electoral College, pack the Supreme Court. Right. Those things are the most dangerous ideas of all uh, for that very reason. But luckily, those ones are the ones that are farthest from actually happening anytime soon. So I guess that's, that's what keeps me optimistic, that things cannot really get, uh, they can't get too bad. Yeah. Well, that, that's my concern is exactly, you know, what you were talking about is that it seems to me that that the you know democratic socialist movement in this country has done a phenomenal job of shifting the Overton window to the point that really un-American ideas are now within the realm of possibility. And I, I never thought that I would see that in my lifetime, or at least I would see it when I was old and gray, you know, not in my 30s. Um, so the, the slope has been very slippery. And I, I just hope that um, you know, like you said, I hope that those institutions can hold and defend our rights, but ultimately I'm getting more and more to, you know, be 
feeling as if I'm kind of an accelerationist where I, I would almost rather see the system fall and let us um, kind of re regroup. But I know that's not without major risks. So I, I don't say that lightly. I, I know that it could be very ugly if we go there. I'm just not sure that, you know, if we can't shift the Overton window back towards, you know, radical freedom, I'm not sure that, uh, that we have much hope. So I don't know. That was, that was my black pill to counter your white pill. I apologize. But uh, <laughs> I, I do, I do agree with you though, that, that we need more people, you know, meeting people where they are, uh, be it TikTok writing, podcasting, things of that nature. So I'd like to pivot to that. Uh, your show has obviously had some amazing guests breaking boundaries. You guys can find it on iTunes and you said Spotify, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, first off, I'd like to know, uh, how do you get such incredible guests? Cause man, you have a docket. Yeah, so I, I have had some great guests. I've had Senator Rand Paul. I've had Steve Forbes of Forbes Magazine. Um, who else have I had that that your listeners would know? I had I had a transgender conservative YouTuber named Blair White. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know her. Really interesting. Uh, and then I have coming up in the next three months or so. That it's it's hard to work around their offices' schedules. I'm going to be having uh, Justin Amash, Tulsi Gabbard, and Thomas Massey all at various points. Uh, honestly, I, I and and who else have I had that people might might like? I've had the governor of New Hampshire. Um, I, I've had all all sorts of guests. Really, I, I'm I'm one thing that's actually interesting is it's really hard to get guests from the left. I had Glenn Greenwald, <laughs> but he's kind of a dissident leftist. It's really hard to get progressives to come on any sort of program that's not progressive. Um, but so, how do I get good guests? Honestly, it's just because I was working as a journalist beforehand. I, I, I know a lot of, uh, of the offices and the people. And so really what I, I'm trying to do with the podcast is bring the contacts and, and, and connections that I made as a journalist in DC, bring them to uh, a new audience into a new platform uh, and have more kind of zoomed out substantive conversations with these people. Because when you're working as a journalist, it's like, can you comment on this? Do you have a quote on this? Or did you see Trump's tweet? And it's like, I'm more interested in, <laughs> talking about the ideas with people. Um, right. And so that's what I'll be looking to do with the show. Uh, and it is off to a, a great start and I'm excited about where it's headed. So if people have liked this episode, they should check out the show. Like you mentioned, it's Breaking Brown, Breaking Boundaries and it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And I also do video on YouTube under Brad Palumbo. So check that out too. Nice. Well, you, you've got uh, an amazing show and I'm, I'm really hopeful for where you go with it. I think that uh, you know having having voices on uh, talk about a white pill. You get Thomas Massey and uh, and Rand Paul and Tulsi Gabbard. Those are like those are my three greatest white pills in in modern American politics. So that's awesome that you get to talk to them and and get their voices out to your audience because I think they're really important messengers for uh, freedom to a large extent, and we need that more than ever. Yeah, I, I agree, and I'm I'm excited about it, and uh, we'll have to have you on sometime too. I appreciate it, man. Um, do you, do you ever get nervous when you're talking to these big these big wheelers and dealers? <laughs> um, not not really. I the funny thing is that they're all much more low key in person than you would expect. Um, yeah, I feel like was, Thomas Massey would just be like one of my homies. <laughs> so I haven't I have I have not met Massey in person. I will say, uh, I was I was intimidated by Rand. I interviewed him in his Senate office the first time. Um, though I will say. He was substantially shorter than I expected. So I'm a tall guy. I towered over him. Uh, and I, 
for some reason I thought of him as a he's and he's not sure he's average, but I I just thought I had thought of him as a tall person and he is not. <laughs> um, so that was kind of funny. What's he uh, like five five nine? Yeah, something like that. So I was just surprised to be as much ta- taller than him as I was. So when we took a photo for the magazine, uh, we were both sitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't don't want to show him up. Uh, I, it's funny because uh, it's just like how you view your heroes. You know, like I feel like if I were to meet Ron Paul, I'm six one, but I feel like I would be looking up at him, and I'm sure I'd be looking down. You know. Yeah, it is. It is weird meeting people uh, in in real life who you've just seen on TV all the time or uh, it is, it is weird, but honestly, then you get kind of over it quickly because they're just people like anybody else. So, right. Right. Yeah. And also, I mean, I generally, uh, my interviews, they're not like, I sometimes ask people tougher questions or push them on things, but it's not like a hostile interview ever. I'm not interviewing people who I think, um, I mean, I'd be open to it, but they won't. AOC won't be coming on my show anytime soon, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, you, so, you'd get a lot of new listeners. That'd be great if you could get her. But yeah, I'm sure it'd be. Oh, I would. Be, lo- I would love that. But she won't even debate Ben Shapiro, and he's got the biggest audience of anybody. Right. So, <laughs> um, well, I got two more questions for you. To get to get you out of here. Um, first off, uh, I'm I'm feeling more and more paranoid about uh, kind of the. T- technocratic takeover of our society uh, where do you fall on you know ring doorbells and uh, uh amazon alexas are are you as uh, paranoid or do you just go like well it is what it is um i have mixed feelings on it like i got the uh i got this uh request on apple on my phone the other day where it's like do you want to participate in the tracking and be notified if you con- come in contact with somebody who's got covid19 and i was like hell no <laughs> I don't want that going to the <laughs> CDC. Uh, I don't want them tracking my iPhone's location. Uh, but I guess I'll say at the same time, um, to me, there's a substantial difference between I'm much more comfortable with Apple uh, invading my privacy, knowing that like they have a business incentive to respond to what I want. And if, sure. I, if they do something bad, I can switch than I am with the government. Uh, so yeah. I, I, I tend to not be super into like having a ring doorbell or having an Alexa. I don't have any of that, but to some extent, I mean, it's it's different for me too, because I I work as a public figure in the outward facing sphere. So my life's already an open book in a lot of ways. So I do to some extent. You've already self self (laughs) self-doxed. Right. I mean, I are, so to some extent, I just shrug it, shrug it off. But um, the, the thing I will say is I don't support any sort of like conservative nationalists like break up big tech or regulate big tech or anything like that really but i do think social media is bad for people and i I, and i need to do it for my job but i've really tried to unplug uh and spend more time reading paper books uh and and all going long periods of time without checking twitter and so that's something people i would recommend doing not because of some like big brother issue but just because of the way, the, the way that affects your brain and the toll that can take on you uh, mentally. So I, I, I'm a big proponent of that. Yeah. Well, I think it is, it's multifaceted first and foremost. Yes, it is. It is not super healthy for us. And I think that, you know, we're, we're adjusting to that on the fly, this, this, you know, kind of parabolic increase of technology, technology over our lifetimes. Uh, we don't evolve that quickly and we're just not ready for it. But simultaneously, I think that, that there is real danger in the sense that, you know, these, these technology, these big tech companies have kind of a oligopoly that's government protected. And then they also have, 
in my in my view, they almost certainly have you know backdoors and things like that for the CIA, CIA and other organizations for you know under under pretense of fighting terrorism or whatever else. So it's not it's not as if um, these companies are wholly private in that sense. So that's where my my eyebrow lifts, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I think Apple's encryption fight with the government is probably the most interesting example of that because they've been pretty stalwart, at least last time I had followed the story about not giving the government a backdoor code to unlock any iPhone. But some exactly. of the other companies have totally rolled over. Yeah, that's, uh, so- that's the concern. It's like, it's like I, I agree with you. That's great that Apple has done that. But when you realize that it's only one company and you know that like, there's these other big five that have unbelievable information about our lives and, and you don't hear about a lawsuit. You're like, Oh, they've already given it to them. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, that is concerning, I guess. But even when you're writing an email now, like, I guess you got to know that like the, the national security administration probably can see that. So, right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's creepy. Um, all right. Last question for you. Uh, if you could eliminate one federal uh, government department or organization, which and why, and uh, how would that assist us in our fight for liberty? Probably the Department of Higher Education, uh, Department of Education, yeah. um, just because there's no constitutional role for it, and it's the kind of thing that uh, I was talking about federalism and, and state competition of ideas earlier. Well, the nationalization of or federalization of govern of uh, education mm-hmm. policy totally flies in the face of that. Um, and also, I don't think it would be a huge adjustment. It's like you couldn't abolish the DOD tomorrow or, or, you know, like without a huge shock to the system and to the country. I mean, what does the Department of Education do other than <laughs> it further its own existence and interfere with control of state and local education uh, departments that already exist? So yep. I think that's the easiest, easiest answer for sure. Well, to, to answer your question as to what did they do? They've taken us from uh, number one in education to, I think, number 25 or something in the past right. 40 years. So I mean, what do they accomplish <laughs> that is good? No, I know. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, all right, Brett. Well, I, I really appreciate it. Um, guys, please check out uh, his podcast. He's got phenomenal guests, as we've already gone over. His show is called Breaking Boundaries. You can find it on Spotify and iTunes and uh, also on YouTube. And uh, Brad, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'll catch you next time. Just a quick note for you guys. We had uh, Brad on, but we did not reference his Twitter handle. So I wanted to do that. It is at Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. He's, uh, he's really doing good work. His writing's great. He's covering the stuff that needs to be covered. And I really appreciate him coming on. We also had Josh Smith uh, scheduled for this week, but he messaged me this morning saying that he was feeling under the weather. I think that he's going to get a COVID test. So prayers up for Josh. Hopefully hopefully he gets well soon and we could have him on next week. Um, I think we will, and it should be a fun one. So tune in for that. As always, if you enjoy the show, leave a five-star review on iTunes and uh, leave your Twitter handle or social media, and I will shout you out. Boom, boom. Love you guys. See ya.